Good morning, saints of our Lord, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Brady Finner, and pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for tuning us in this morning on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. A blessed Easter season to all of you this Friday, June the 3rd, as the light of Jesus shines on us in Genesis chapter 10. We got through the flood, and that's one of those, you go back, you rehash, you look at it a little closer, and we have found so many gems. And the the reality is, you have this great story, and it ends with, well, not such a great story. It is a soap opera, I think, on steroids. And then it comes down to chapter 10. Often, here's what happens. You're going to read through the Bible. You get through chapter 9, and you're like, okay, all right, I got through that. I'm a little bit traumatized. But I'm going to figure it out. And then you get to chapter 10 and you quick look at it and go, "Eh, I'll go to chapter 11 (laughs) because it's all this genealogies and the descendancy from Noah. But one of the beauties of what we're doing today is that we're letting the word of God speak. So as we look at the descendants from Noah, we not only know that this is the inspired word of God, that every name matters to the Lord and ultimately we will see Christ because Christ is on every page of Scripture. So as we do that, open up your Bibles, put on your Christ goggles for the gifts are ready, ready for you. Thank you to our friends at Lutheran Heritage Foundation for your support of Thy Strong Word. Visit lhfmissions.org for more information. lhfmissions.org. Helping us to be strengthened by God's Word this morning, we welcome back Pastor Jim Price of Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in Wamego, Kansas. Pastor Price, welcome back to Thy Strong Word. Thanks, Brady. It's good to be back with you guys again. All right, Pastor. So what's going on for you, your family, and the work of the saints at Mount Calvary right there, almost the middle of Kansas? Are you kind of, are you central Kansas? How would you define that? Oh, man. The, uh, you're uh, asking me to kind of imagine a map here. The, uh, I, I think that's a safe uh, spot to put us uh, in the middle of the Midwest or something like that. Very so, good. Yeah. So what's going on for you and your family? Well, of course, uh, summer has uh, begun in the sense that the kids are home from school. My wife, who works in the school system, Cheryl, she's uh, she's home now. So lots of uh, kind of uh, easing into the summer schedule, I'd say. Probably a lot of time. we got a really nice city pool in, here in Wamego, so probably the kids will spend a lot of time there. We've, we've got, uh, I don't know if you know this, but Wamego, Kansas is famous for its 4th of July fireworks. Probably oh, one of the, if it's not the biggest show in the Midwest, it's, it's one of the biggest. Uh, our, our little town of uh, 4,500, the, the population on 4th of July will explode to something close to 50,000. So it's just, uh, it's a huge, huge, huge deal that the city gets, gets ready for that, you know, our church will, uh, be serving out free watermelon out in the city park on the, on the fourth. And so that's just community stuff that's coming up. And uh, then there's all the different church things with vacation Bible school and different youth events. The Kansas district convention is coming up. So lots of, uh, lots of busyness that way. Well, and thanks be to God for that, you know, and a little bit of a a connection uh, to that. My wife and I went to three of those firework celebrations when my wife, yeah when we moved down to St. Louis and my grandfather, as I mentioned prior, had joined Mount Calvary and he had married a gal from Wamiga. We walked down those hill and looked at yeah. that fireworks. And you're right, it was a display to see, and it was a real joy to be able to celebrate that with my 
with my grandfather and step-grandmother. So yeah, that's near and dear to my heart. My heart is, is full right now as you say that, so I appreciate that. But Pastor, yeah. um, we are here to uh, study the Word of God. Can you begin our time and ask the Lord's blessings in prayer? Absolutely. Let's have a prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for rescuing and redeeming the fallen human race in your Son, Christ Jesus, who took on our, our, own, our own human uh, nature that he might be our brother. And so as we look at how the story of salvation unfolds in Genesis, pointing to Christ, may our faith and our wonder at your work in history and in our own lives uh, increase. And so we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you have any questions concerning our text today, send us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org, kfuo at kfuo.org. Pastor, as we have looked at chapter 10, it is, uh, there's a number of descendancies, genealogies. It, you kind of have a, a, a worldwide groan when a reading plan gets to Genesis chapter 10. It's like, okay, just give me to the Tower of Babel. This is really not fascinating. But it is still the Word of God. So, Pastor, how do you want to... We will begin by reading a few of the verses, but before we get to that, what's your encouragement to our listeners as you come upon genealogies, what to look for, and why they're so important for us as Christians? Well, my guess is you've probably already, when you looked at, uh, at some of the genealogies earlier, the, the genealogy really in, in chapter 5 and uh, beginning even in 4, you probably touched a little on this, and that is that what the genealogies help us do, and really what I hope that we can do over this next uh, this next hour, is see how the genealogy points us ultimately to Christ. That's what the genealogies are about. Uh, that's what they're trying to help us see, both our need for the Savior, but then uh, the line through whom the Savior comes. So we're gonna that that is a, a part of what's in this genealogy. Um, it's a little bit different than the others in Genesis, and we'll talk about that as we as we unpack this, but. That would be really where I would want to begin with the genealogies, that, that in general, the biblical genealogies, and, and specifically the ones that we're looking at in Genesis, are helping us think about Christ. And so as you look at that, one of the, one of the moments that we want to do is you want to have a summary. And one of the great ways of looking at this genealogy is probably begin at the beginning and at the end. So we'll start this way. Is verse, we'll read verse 1. And then we'll re read verse 32. Now, a little bit of a, a reminder for everybody. Um, these, these, these names are going to be hard. So if it is like Pastor Finneran is just way off in those pronunciations, I can blame two things. I blame my Minnesota accent because we just don't do well in other cultures, I would say, with our accent. And number two is I should have paid more attention in Hebrew class. I'll just use those two excuses right now. But anyways, but we will get through that. And I want to start verses 1 and 32 as we dig into God's holy word. Verse 1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. And then we'll go to verse 32. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, a nation spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Pastor, how do you want to begin? We hear of the generations. Okay. So notice right away what these both of these verses do, actually. The first and the very last, they connect us to the events that have already taken place, namely the flood. So it connects us back to certainly chapter 9 as 
as Noah and his family come out of the ark, then that's going to lead into the covenant, never destroy the earth by flood. We get the rainbow. We get then this uh, sad episode uh, at the end of the chapter where we see Noah's drunkenness, his nakedness, his son Ham's mockery of him, and the cursing of Ham's son Canaan. You get the blessing of Shem. And then that, uh, that horrible refrain uh, where we hear about the death of Noah. So there we go, that we, we still see that even though the flood has occurred, yet this, this new creation, if you will, is still tainted by sin and, uh, and by death. So we get that. And then in that last verse that you read in chapter, in, a, in excuse me, verse 32, we're already getting a little bit of a preview of what's coming up in chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel. Not about the tower so much, but what comes after, and that is the spreading out of, of humanity across, uh, across the earth after the flood. So we're kind of getting these two real familiar and interesting accounts, Noah and Babel, uh, reference to, but right in between, as you noted, we've got chapter 10, which at first glance might look kind of boring. In fact, one of my commentaries on my shelf is by a good, solid uh, Lutheran scholar named H.C. Leupold, and maybe you've got him on your shelf too, Pastor. Hmm. But at the end of each of the chapters in Genesis that he deals with, he makes some suggestions on how a pastor might preach on that chapter or teach from that chapter. And so this is one of the first things I looked at after I, I committed to this, this particular uh, chapter in Genesis. And what he said in that section is, it may well be questioned whether a man should ever preach on a chapter such as this. And then he goes on to say, that, well, you probably don't want to preach on it. You might talk about it in an adult Bible study, kind of like we're doing here today. He says, even then, you know, get through it quickly, just a summary view, and then get on to other things that are more interesting. So, you know, I'm thinking... Man, I've signed up to talk about <laughs> after ten for a whole hour, and here's uh, one of the one of the commentaries saying you don't want to talk about this for very long. So that made me a little. Um, as it turns out, though, chapter ten it's it's really very very interesting. Um, even though, as you referenced, this is the kind of thing we get to all these names and we want to we want to skip over. It's it's just people. It's it's sons of Noah, their sons, 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 grandsons. We also, though, do get the names, not just of individuals, but of of people groups or nations that are descended from these sons. And connected to these names are the places where the people, where the nations spread to. So, for instance, we'll see one of the sons is named Egypt. Well, we think of Egypt not just as a person. Uh, we think of that as a, as a place. And so we're going to see that all throughout this chapter. Also, in thinking about the places where these people groups end up um, getting to after they are dispersed in chapter 11, you get something that, that reminded me of what I do when I'm rehearsing for a wedding with a couple that's getting married. So if a couple comes in and we're going to do a wedding and we're doing the rehearsal, let's say, on Friday evening, what I always do at the rehearsal is I have the wedding couple and the whole bridal party at the, at the very beginning of the rehearsal, I put them in their spots. So I put the, you know, the bride and the groom right up front, put the bridesmaids and, and all that. And that way, when we actually begin practicing coming in, they know exactly where they're going to go. 
And so chapter 10 is kind of like that in its relation to chapter 11. 11 is going to tell us, hey, all these nations are dispersed all over the earth. But before that even happens, we already know from chapter 10 what direction they're going, where are they going to end up. And so with that in mind, that helps us see how the genealogy in Genesis 10 is a little bit different from other genealogies in Genesis, like the one that you looked at in chapter 5, or like the one that you'll get to at the end of chapter 11. Because whereas those genealogies are focused on the individuals themselves, and they'll give us information uh, like like the names of the patriarchs and how old they were when uh, such and such a son was born, and then how old were they when they died. Uh, here in Genesis 10, we will get, along with the names of individuals, a, a focus rather on the people groups, uh, the nations that descend from those names. And that's why this chapter is often referred to as the table of nations. Um, one other kind of a, a quick note on nations. When we use the word nation in our, in, just in conversation today, we often use it as a kind of synonym for a country and, and with very clearly defined borders that define where, where that country is on the map. We should probably not hear it uh, quite so strongly in that way in this chapter of Genesis. The nations, as they are referred to, are really, really more like people groups uh, rather than, than uh, strictly defined geographical borders. So that, that's something to keep in mind. The other thing that's really interesting about this chapter in light of the rest of the Old Testament is that there is one nation that is glaringly absent so we got 70 nations that are listed here in chapter 10. And the one nation that's not there that we might expect to find there is Israel. Israel is not mentioned in chapter 10, even though it's at the very heart of this story of what God is doing for all the nations. So Israel is coming. It's on the way. It's going to end up being a part of the nations, but it's going to show up late on on the stage of the nations. Isn't that interesting? Mm. And would make us say, well, why is that? What is God up to in, in leaving Israel out? And so, so I don't know, you know, all the reasons that might be behind that, but here, here's a couple that I think um, are at least helpful for me in thinking through what might be going on here. And so one of the things is, I think that even before God chooses Israel, for his, his very important purpose for them in history, he's reminding them of their common humanity. You know, where do they come from? Uh, and they come from the same place that everyone else in the world comes from. Uh, they're chosen, but as it were, they are the least of nations, kind of like Paul, who comes in late as an apostle. He's the least of the apostles, and yet God has such a powerful and important role for him. And as the story unfolds, then Israel was to see their having been chosen not because they're so great and certainly not at the expense of the other nations, but actually for the blessing of all the other nations. So Israel is of the nations. Uh, Israel is chosen as a blessing for the nation. So I think that all of that is being hinted at in this section of, of Genesis before we're ever even introduced to Israel or, uh, or Abraham. Well, let's start digging in. Like you mentioned, there is, it is fascinating to think of 
we think of boundaries and we're very clear with our boundaries. You are now in this county. You are now in this state. And, you know, there's there's areas. For example, this is a Kansas example. If you meet somebody like from in Minnesota and they say we're from Kansas City, that's code for I'm from Kansas City, Missouri. But right. if somebody is from Kansas City, Kansas, they are very adamant. I'm Kansas City, Kansas. <laughs> The, right. the Missouri folks don't say Missouri. They don't have to because they're they're the boss in their minds, at least. And the Kansas City folks are like, no, I am Kansas, Kansas Cityan, you know, that kind of thing. We think in that realm, this realm is about the nations, the people, the the relationship, the all of that, those kind of things. And so it's good for us to remember that, too, this genealogy as we see it as really a gift. The whole world is wiped out except for eight people. And the Lord still provides, like you like you mentioned so beautifully. So I'm ready to start digging in a few verses at a time. Are you ready? Yeah, let's do two uh, through five. All right, two through five. Here we go. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Rip, 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 and Togarmah. The sons of Javon, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland people spread their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. Pastor, we hear of Japheth. What do you got? Well, this is the shortest section of the Table of Nations. We got 14 names that are listed in these verses. Seven of them are directly the sons of Japheth, and then the other seven are Japheth's grandsons. Uh, by the way, just as a side note, working through this, um, I don't know if you know that the number one hobby in the United States is gardening. Now, would you like to take a guess? Second most popular hobby in the United States is. I'm, I, I have no idea, but how about collecting stamps? <laughs> it, it, it'd be, it's actually genealogy. Ah, okay, sure, fair enough, fair enough. This, this is actually a, it's a billion-dollar industry. There are all kinds of different websites, uh, genealogical libraries that you can get into to trace family tree. There is, right now, this is a, a huge market. If, if you've gotten in on it 10 years ago, you'd probably have made a, you know, a ton of money. But uh, in-home DNA kits. And so you buy these, uh, you know, Ancestry.com, these kinds of things. And you send in a, a, a sample of your DNA. It's usually like a saliva swab or something like that. And you can find out from, from just that little bit of, of information what part of the world your family originated from, what different ethnicities are in your background. And, 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 uh, and people want to know that stuff. Uh, lots and lots of people are very, very interested in where do they come from? What are my roots? And what Genesis 10 is telling us is that every single one of us is descended from one of Noah's sons. And mm. through his sons, then we're descended, you know, from Noah himself. So that's the human family tree with its three major branches. And of course, what that means then is this goes back to Noah's own ancestry. So the, the beginnings of the family tree for all of us um, goes right back to the beginning. It's, it's Adam, you know, created by God in his image, you know, he, he and Eve, and then you got Seth, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, and then through one of Noah's three sons, it's Shem, Ham, or Japheth for each one of us. 
And so on the one hand, what this text does is it gives great dignity to every single human being. The roots of our family tree reach all the way back to the day that God made Adam in his image from the dust of the earth and breathed life into him and then formed Eve. And plus, then each one of us is reminded how every other person on earth has that same dignity and is a part of, of my family. That's, that's one of the things that this chapter is showing us. There's a, uh, a, a biblical scholar uh, today, his name is Albert Moeller, mm-hmm. and he has this great line, he's talking about this chapter, he says, as gospel people, our responsibility is to see the world, its headlines, and its heartaches through gospel eyes. And chapter 10 helps us do that. It helps us see people through gospel eyes as we realize that they and that we are we're actually part of the same family whom God loves and for whom Christ came into the world. And it's showing us that, that as we look at the heartaches and the heartbreaks in the world that are all around us, and boy, we've seen some of these in the news recently. We have these mass shootings, Uvalde and Buffalo. You think of the war that's going on in Europe right now, the, the, the religious violence taking place in, in Africa, all these kinds of things that we, we, we shouldn't look too quickly away from these things. In fact, we really shouldn't look away from them at all, but we should, we should feel with, the, with a real compassion how we would feel if a member of the family was suffering through these things, because actually it is our family. So, Pastor, do you happen to know which of Noah's sons you're most likely descended from? <laughs> I do not. Can you give me some filters of how to determine that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for for those with European heritage, most are from the stock of Japheth, the section that we okay. just read mm-hmm. from. Mm-hmm. So and the reason why I say that is because the nations that come from Japheth settle mostly uh, in uh, what would later become as, uh, known as Asia Minor, Minor and then into Europe, you know, north of the region that would become the promised land of Israel. So in relation to Israel and where Israel will end up being, the sons of Japheth uh, mostly move kind of north, and then once they, they, they move, they kind of disperse east and west through, through eastern and western Europe. And so Moses deals with them first and very, very briefly and then they just disappear from the story for the most part. I mean, they'll, they'll make some uh, some guest appearances later on in the Old Testament, for, but mostly we don't hear very much about them in the Old Testament. And a part of that is because these are the nations with whom Israel had the least contact. They were they moved far away. It's kind of like sometimes you have cousins and you don't really know them very well because they live so far away from maybe where you live. Whereas if you have cousins who are who are, you know, closer at hand, maybe within the same state or, or maybe even in the same community, same town. We, you know them really, really well. And it's kind of like that amongst the family of nations in relationship to Israel. Some nations moved far away, and they, they disappear from Israel's story, in a sense. Uh, but others live very close at hand, and then we know more about them. So that's something that we see with, with the sons of Japheth. Something else that we see here, is that it's very typical of biblical genealogies that not every person and not every family is traced with the same kind of detail. So you got seven sons of Japheth, and we can see this even just right here. Seven sons are named in verse 2. Then only two of his sons, Gomer and Javan, are followed with regard to their sons. 
Mm. So there's five other sons of Japheth. We don't know anything about them other than they were just named. Um, and they just, you know, otherwise they're, they're, they're not referenced anymore. So biblical genealogies are selective. doesn't mean that they're not accurate. It just means that they tell us um, what we need to know, not necessarily everything that we might want to know about the, about, you know, the different names that show up. Something else that we can see here, I think, is that God wants us to know right from the start of chapter 10 that humanity is going to spread out. And they're going to go in, in, in all these different directions, and some of them are going to, you know, go go far away, and, and people won't exactly know, you know, what their story is, at least in biblical times. But that that's actually something that goes back to God's original blessing on humanity in Genesis chapter 1. So Genesis 1, verse 28, this is day six of creation. Before the fall into sin, it's obviously a long time before uh, the flood or the Tower of Babel, for sure. And right after we're told that God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created male and female, he created them. The very next verse begins, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So that statement, fill the earth, is really important. That, that blessing is repeated in chapter 9 after Noah and family come out of the ark. So again, first verse, chapter 9, God blessed Noah and his sons, said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. So whatever failures and sins are going to come through this family line, and of course many will, God's word of blessing uh, to Noah and his sons is not revoked. It's the same blessing that was given to mankind right on day 6, the very day that Adam and Eve were were brought to brought into being. So you'll likely cover this, I'm going to guess, in some greater detail in chapter 11 when you get to Babel, but we're already seeing the fact that humanity is dispersed all over the earth. That's actually not itself a judgment on sin. The being dispersed was God's purpose right from the beginning. And St. Paul reminds us of that in the, in the New Testament passage, Acts chapter 17. He's preaching to a group of of Gentiles in Athens, that he says to them, from one man, God made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. So that's a part of the blessing. The spreading out is not a, is not a part of, a, of God's curse in any way. Um, but here's the problem. Even though God will accomplish his purpose of filling the earth with humanity, after the fall into sin, the only the only humanity available is fallen. They're, they're sinners. So what is God going to do about that? Well, we know what he's going to do. He's going to send the seed of the woman. He's going to send his son, which we're going to talk more about that in a bit. But his purpose in, in this is that he is going to fill the earth with a saving gospel. And so you come to the end of the gospel of Matthew, and you get the Great Commission. And what are the disciples told? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So even though in Genesis we're going to see the nations dispersed in sin, dispersed in division, that's coming up in 11, what's going to happen in the gospel is that the message of Christ for the world, that's now going to fill the earth to save these very sinners, these nations, and make out of the many a new humanity that's brought together as one people, uh, one holy nation, united in the one Savior Christ. So 
that's uh, those, those are thoughts, you know, looking at this first section that we've gotten beyond just, just the sons of Japheth, but uh, that, that will help us see what's going on with the rest of the family as well. So any thoughts on that? Uh, if not, I'm ready to roll on to verses 6 to 20. Well, I'm just, I'm just excited to, you know, uh, add great, 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 great grandpa Japheth to my, uh, to my genealogy when I, when I get to the Finner and genealogy someday. Anyways, no, it, it's a great reminder. Sometimes we can think of the Tower of Babel that the, the spreading of the nations uh, of people was a sign of sin when clearly that's not what this was. It was, it went to the earth and guess what? The, the proclamation of the gospel is to go out to the nations as well, which is, I think, a very good connection as we look at the word nations, as also this table of nations is named as well. But Pastor, we need to take a quick break. We are studying Genesis chapter 10 with Pastor Jim Price, and we will be right back. What's happening in Germany's Lutheran churches? where Iranian refugees are flooding through the doors. What new opportunities for sharing the Christian faith are arising in communist Vietnam, and how can my church play a part? Mission speakers, all LCMS pastors from the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, will come to your church, free of charge, to preach and lead Bible studies tying into this exciting work going on all around the world. To schedule your speaker, call LHF at 800-554-0723. And welcome back. We are studying Genesis chapter 10 with Pastor Jim Price of Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in Wamego, Kansas. And what we'll do now, Pastor, we have uh, studied Japheth. Now we'll get to the sons of Ham, which is verses 6 through 20. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabtika, the sons of Araman, Sheba, and Dadon. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord Yahweh. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Echad, and Kalneh, in the land of Shinar. From the land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. Rehoboathir, Kala, and Rezin, between Nineveh and Kala, that is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludman, Ludim, Anamim, Leabim, Naphudim, Pathrusim, Kashulim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphotorim. Canaan fathered Sidon, Sidon, his firstborn, and Haith, and the Jebusites, the Amorites the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, and the Sinites, the Ardavites, Zemarites, the Hamathites. Afterward, the sons of the Canaanites dispersed. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon to the direction of Gerar, as far as the Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their nation, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Pastor, we hear about the sons of, of Ham, and there's there's a little more dialogue in this, a little more details. What do you have? 
Yeah, so in the previous section, we only had 14 uh, nations, if you will, mentioned. Now we have 30 nations. That's more than twice. And if you think of Japheth and his clans moving off sort of northward and then spreading out to the east and the west, we might think of the line of Ham as moving generally southward. So they're going to they're going to move into Egypt, Ethiopia, Africa. Uh, others of them, though, are going to spread out and they're going to occupy what will later on become the promised land. Uh, still, others are going to settle in the region of Mesopotamia. So this longest section in chapter 10, the very length of it tells us that this is an important section. And sure enough, as we read through these nations, we find out that those descended from Ham are are very connected to Israel's story. Uh, in fact, central to Israel's story. Many of these descendants are going to end up being Israel's closest neighbors. Not all of them, but uh, many of them are going to be very close neighbors. And uh, a, a good number of them are going to be Israel's primary foes, their enemies. Mm-hmm. The, the descendants of Ham are going to have a, a huge impact on the life of Israel, politically, culturally, religiously. Three of the large empires that are mentioned in the Old Testament are all descended from Ham. So we have Egypt. If if some of your uh, listeners are reading from the NIV or other translations, rather than Egypt, it might say Misraim. Uh, it's the same, same thing. It's just uh, some translations say Egypt, others use that other uh, name. That's going to play a big role in Israel's history. As Moses is writing these things, remember, he's leading the people uh, that have come out of slavery in Egypt. One of the nations uh, that will come from Ham's son, Egypt, will be uh, eventually the Philistines. Ham's grandson, Nimrod, through Cush, is going to establish the kingdoms of Babylon and Assyria. These are nations that will both become uh, conquering enemies of Israel. So you got Egypt, you got Babylon, Assyria, the big three, you got the Philistines, all of them come from the line of Ham. And then you have, of course, Ham's son Canaan, who will have 11 sons, and they're going to occupy that eastern Mediterranean region, uh, which will uh, become the promised land. And and these nations will, uh, for the most part, be driven out by the Israelites. So on the one hand, in the context of the original uh, Israelite, excuse me, Israelite readers, we see the names of, of a lot of people uh, with whom Israel in the time of Moses is already in some kind of conflict with or with whom they very soon will be in conflict with. But on the other hand, Israel is still being reminded of their family connection even to these nations. And even though we haven't gotten to chapter 12, you know, just two chapters away, uh, God is going to declare to Abram that his divine purpose in choosing Abram is that, that all nations will be blessed through Abram's offspring. So these things are all connected, and we don't want to forget them. And certainly God didn't want his people Israel Israel to forget these as they moved on. So one of the things that's interesting about this section is the introduction to this fellow named Nimrod. And what's different about him is is more is said about him than any other person in the whole in the whole chapter. Every other uh, name except for one, Peleg, we get a real brief biographical note on the meaning of his name or why he was named what he was. But but Nimrod gets a lot. So I, I just want to read those verses and then let's unpack that a little bit. 
So verses 8 to 12 says, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erek, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. Nimrod is described as, on the one hand, a mighty man, and then also is a mighty hunter before the Lord. So this guy sounds like a pretty impressive figure. And then you, you listen to all these you know, great cities that he built. And mm. this was not, uh, not somebody that you'd mess around with. And that's interesting, uh, if for no other reason from, from our own cultural perspective, uh, in that that is not what we mean with, by the name Nimrod. So if, if somebody, you know, calls somebody a Nimrod today, Pastor, what does that mean? Well, I'll tell you what, I grew up in a town in Wadena, but about 20 miles away was a town called Nimrod. And every single time that you say, I live near a town named Nimrod or the LCMS pastor who pastors in Nimrod, it never gets a positive comment from somebody who doesn't know the town. So I'll just, I'll just stop at that. That's how it's usually referred to. <laughs> yeah. So I, I wonder when that began, because the, it's, there's no question that, that in our culture today, if you call somebody uh, a Nimrod, that's, you know, this is somebody who is, is more to be pitied than feared, you know, likely the butt of jokes. Mm-hmm. And uh, asked my, I've got, you know, I've got a daughter who is in eighth grade. I've got a, 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 you know, got a couple kids in elementary school. And I asked them, you know, what is, you know, is that still a thing today? Is that a, is that an insult? Oh yeah. You yeah, know, that's uh that's, that's, that's not a, you, you don't want to be called a Nimrod and people still use that as an insult in school. But from, uh, from a little bit of research that I did, evidently it has not always been that way in our culture. And the fact that you've got a, a town near where you grow, grew up called Nimrod suggests that is certainly the case. So, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. what in the world happened that Nimrod uh, <laughs> fell so far that his name would be uh, descriptive of, of somebody who is uh, uh, maybe the opposite of what the Bible says about Nimrod. And here's, here's an interesting thing that I ran across trying to figure that out. And to me, this actually seems like the most likely explanation. And it goes back to an episode of a Warner Brothers, a Looney Tunes cartoon. Back in 1948, uh, there's an episode about Daffy Duck and Elmer Fudd, and it's called What Makes Daffy Duck? And, uh, of course, remember that Elmer Fudd is supposed to be, this, in his own mind, this great hunter. And he's usually hunting Bugs Bunny and sometimes Daffy Duck. And in this episode, he's trying to, to kill Daffy Duck, and he, and he can't. And so Daffy Duck calls him a nimrod. And obviously, he's using that sarcastically because he's the opposite of a great hunter. And in an era when people were more biblically literate, uh, they would have gotten a joke but uh, of course, as time has gone on, people are less biblically literate, and and now you know Nimrod appears uh, to be something closer to Elmer Fudd than the original character. So that, that was, I ran over this, uh, ran across this several times in trying to figure out, you know, what what in the world happened with Nimrod. I asked uh, asked an eighty year old 
a fellow, you know, you know, what would it mean to you if you heard somebody called a Nimrod? His first answer was, well, that'd be somebody who's really good at hunting. Right. So okay, yeah. obviously yeah. there's a generational switch in, in how that uh, name, you know, sort of, you know, became a pejorative. So that, that's all, you know, that doesn't have anything to do really with what the Bible says, except to help us think about why would, why would this name that is connected with power and strength, why would it be in our culture, you know, the very opposite of that? In the Bible itself, what we find out about Nimrod is, on the one hand, his name means rebel or we shall rebel. Mm-hmm. So he, he, he seems to have been a rebellious fellow or at least associated with rebellion in some way. He's also connected with Babel. So verse 10, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, where humanity intentionally rebels against God's purpose. Recall that God's purpose is to fill the earth. What they said is we're going to build a city and a tower. We're going to make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So they don't want to fill the earth. And that's the very reason why they've settled and and built this, this town and tower in the way that they have. So at least by his mention here, Nimrod seems to be associated with that kind of rebellious mindset against the purposes of God. Another uh, not-so-positive association is likely present in the description of Nimrod as a mighty man. So if you go back to chapter 6, before the flood, remember how how it's uh, said there that the sons of God intermingle with the daughters of men and Mm -hmm. then their offspring are described as mighty men. It's the same word that's used there. Mighty, although now it's used of of sort of a bunch of different kind of heroic, mighty type people, uh, whoever they may have been. And then that word Nephilim shows up there too. So then that is immediately followed by, by the increase of wickedness on earth. Now we get to chapter 10, and we're told there's this guy, his name means rebel, and he's described as a mighty man. So just the associations with, with previously what we've run into in Genesis doesn't seem to be positive. More than a mighty man, he's called a mighty hunter before the Lord. Uh, with this word hunter, it may simply be a comment on his prowess as a hunter of, of animals, as a, of game recall that it's it's not until Noah and family come out of the ark in chapter 9 that God gives to humanity the animals for food. So that happens in, in chapter 9, verse 3. Up until that time, evidently, we were, we were vegetarians. And so maybe, you know, not so long, you know, as, as a couple of generations have gone by, Nimrod makes a name for himself as among the very first to really hone this skill. Uh, some think that there's maybe more to it than that, that he's hunting down people whom he oppresses as a builder of empires. Uh, whatever the case is, the fact that Nimrod gets the Lord's attention uh, does not necessarily mean that he's got the Lord's approval. So he's a mighty hunter before the Lord. As a rebel, you know, he's a kingdom builder, uh, Assyrian Babylon. He, he's not a help, uh, helpless Elmer Fudd. Uh, and he's not being overlooked by God. God is well aware of what this guy is up to. Uh, just as later on when, when the Tower of Babel is being built, it says that God God comes down, he sees this. He's not unaware of what's taking place on his earth. So something that Nimrod shows us is already, once again, 
the human race is in rebellion against God. And even though we haven't gotten to Babel, we, 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 we can see the beginnings of what direction mankind is going. So what's God going to do about this? Well, we got one more son of Noah to go, and the answer lies in that direction, not just for that branch of the family, but actually for the whole family of mankind. And it, I want to I want to think about this connection because when I first read through the genealogy of Ham, it is not the cursing. It doesn't basically say all the curses come through Ham. Now we have some cities that are not doing well. Clearly, Sodom, Gomorrah, others. Um, but it doesn't like say like in chapter nine, verse twenty five. You know. He was not happy with Ham and says, Curse be Canaan, a servant of servants shall be to his brothers. And when you read this, like you said, there's there's some implications here about Nimrod, but it's not like he says, the cursed sons of Ham, those who made all those mistakes, even to Canaan, verse 15, the cursed Canaanites or something. It doesn't speak that way. Any thoughts on that? I, I was kind of surprised that there wasn't more revealed explicitly, at least. Any thoughts? Well, my sense is that I mean, we know what's going to happen with the land of Canaan. That's where that's, that's where the Israelites were headed, even as Genesis is is uh, being penned. And so, that, so the, the curse on Canaan, who is the son of Ham, has something to do with what's what's about to happen in in their lives as they have continued to live in rejection of God's God's words to them. So they're they're. The, the time of patience that God had with them is is up with the with the migration of the Israelites into their into this land that is up until then been their homeland, but it is even though God is is bringing judgment upon these people, we don't want to disconnect it from the fact that He has a plan to bless all nations, mm. and as we're going to see, actually there are there are those. Those people, even among the descendants of, of Ham, who end up being a part of, not only a part of the people of God, but actually involved in the direct genealogy of Christ Jesus, the Savior himself. So, so we have to be careful about, you know, thinking about the curse as applied to people in such a way that God says, I, I don't want anything to do with you. After all, Every single one of us is under a curse. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're under the curse of sin. We're under the curse of death. And so when someone's under a curse, a curse from God, it should create in one a sense of, how do I get out from under this? <laughs> right. And God has an answer to that question. And it's going to come through through the, the family of Shem. And that's a, thank you for pulling that back, because I think the lens of it is is kind of the strange it is a very strange way that we look at curses curses in america that we can kind of act like the curses you know it's, it's predestined like there's just nothing you can do there's there's no hope and then as christians we know wait there is there's always hope there's always hope because we have christ who died for the world not for a certain nation not for a certain people but for the world and that you, you brought you brought brought me back there because that uh, that's a, a great reminder for us that God still blesses his people so pastor are, are you ready to get to Shem I am but maybe before you do just because you know you, you got us off a, a slight tangent there but 
great one because you, you, you brought up this issue of curse and then it got us thinking about the, the curse that we're all under. But then it reminds us of what St. Paul says about Christ, that, that cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. And then we're, it's not that God just, you know, it's not that the curse disappears. It's that it falls on someone else instead. And so in a very important sense, Christ, even though he's not from the line of Canaan, uh, he is ultimately the one who, who carries the, the curse of sin on himself. So that's a wonderful way for us to think about what it means, regardless of, of what branch of the family we come from. Mm. Uh, Christ has taken the curse that we all deserve from us. And okay, I'm ready to roll. All right. Well, thanks be to God, and let's get to Shem. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Abar, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born, the sons of Shem, Elam, Ashur, Arpachshad, Lod, Aram, the sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gaither, and Mash. Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons, and name was one was Peleg. For in those days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Alm-Odad, Shelah, Hazamarv, Maveth, Jera, Hadoram, Uzal, Dikla, Obel, Omaya, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they live extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Pastor, as you mentioned, Shem is in a very important person throughout Scripture. Tell us about his genealogy. In this section, what we get is 26 nations that are mentioned. And from here on out, for the most part, uh, the rest of Genesis is going to focus on the descendants of Shem and specifically on one branch of that family, and that is the children of Eber, uh, which is uh, to say the, the Hebrews, that's where we get the word Hebrew, it comes from that son. And it's going to be Shem's line through Eber that's going to lead to Abraham and his descendants, the Israelites. One of Eber's sons, Peleg, does get an extra line that notes he, that he was given this name, which means division, because in his days the earth was divided. So that's probably a reference to the division that's going to follow Babel. So again, uh, kind of pointing us in that direction. There's some other theories on that. They're, they're not very persuasive. I, I think that that is really the probably the most helpful way to think of, of Peleg's name. By giving us the sons of Shem last, Moses is using this pattern that shows up repeatedly in Genesis. I'm guessing that you talked about this when you went through chapters 4 and 5, which record the family lines of, of first Cain and then Seth, the mm -hmm. sons of, of Adam. Uh, so just recall that y you get Cain first, and then his family line falls out of the story as Genesis traces then Seth's line. So what that's, that's telling us is Seth's line, which comes last, that's the chosen line, that's the elect line, and of course that's the line that, that moves us to Noah. So now in chapter 10, as we take a look at Noah's sons, we're going to get the family lines of Japheth and Ham. They're going to come first, then we're going to end up with Shem. And so once again, Genesis 
ends with this brother, uh, this son, because this son is the one who carries forward the elect line. And we're going to see this you know, several more times in Genesis with Abraham's sons. We're going to get Ishmael. We're going to get Isaac. So we're going to talk about Ishmael's genealogy first. When you get there, that'll fall out of the story. Then we're going to take up Isaac. He's going to be center stage. Same thing with his sons. We're going to get Esau and Jacob. And then Esau's descendants will go first. He'll fall out of the story. Jacob's line is going to carry forward the elect and chosen. And the reason why that's important is because Genesis keeps on narrowing down for us who is the seed of the woman whom God promised back in Genesis 3.15 that's going to finally come and crush the serpent's head. And in these genealogies, the pattern is always going to be last son and his descendants carry forward the chosen line through which the seed, that is our Savior, is going to come. So by ending the table of nations with the sons of Shem, Moses is telling us right up front, hey, this is, this is the line we're following. This is the elect line. Of course, as time passes, as the ages pass, as Genesis goes on and the Old Testament continues to reveal God's purpose, the narrowing down of the seed is going to continue. We're going to find out, yes, it's through the through uh, one of the tribes of Israel, and we're going to even find out by the time we get to the end of Genesis, it's going to be Judah. Later in the Old Testament, it's going to be through the specific line of David, and that's going to help us see the importance of the New Testament genealogies in Matthew and Luke that are going to trace Jesus' roots all the way back to the headwaters in Genesis, and ultimately uh, back to Genesis 3.15, the the seed of the woman. So that all tells something very important about the, the Genesis genealogies and, and even chapter 10, and that is that this is more than a family tree. Uh, 10 is more than just the table of nations, that the genealogies are, are a preaching of, of the gospel, really. They are bringing the good news to us, and each genealogy is serving the purpose of tracking down who's going to, who's going to redeem us? Who's going to rescue us? And in the old Testament, what they're telling us is he's on the way. The seed of the woman is on the way all throughout the old Testament. He's not here yet, uh, but he's coming, hang in there. And then when we get to the new Testament, finally uh, he has come. Anything else on that before we, we, a couple more things, anything else that pops Uh, out at you there? Pastor, we have a minute and a half left. We're going to have to summarize this thing up because you are on a roll, but we are short on time. So we have a minute and a half left. How do you want to summarize all this? Maybe get your last point in and encourage our listeners in Christ. Okay, here we go. Let's jump from the first book of the Bible to the last. Mm. So in Revelation, very last book of the Bible, chapter 5, we get this scene in which Jesus, the Lamb of God, is described as Lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, right? This is genealogical language. And then we're told that this hymn is sung to Christ. And here's what, here's what the, 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 the gathered multitude in heaven sings to him. You were slain by your blood. You ransomed people from God, from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And so from Genesis to Revelation, that's what it's about, that, that God in Christ is reconciling the world to himself. And it doesn't matter whether you're a child of Shem, Ham, Jesus, hey, Jesus, Hebrews 2 says, is not ashamed to call us brothers. Now, the, uh, I think I can squeeze this in. So we, we just had Ascension Day not too long ago. Right. And there's a great Ascension hymn 
It's uh, called Up Through Endless Ranks of Angels. And I just want to read verse two. It says, death destroying, life restoring, proven equal to our need. Now for us before the Father, as our brother intercede. Isn't that a wonderful thing for us mm. to think about? It's not just that we're connected uh, back to, to Adam and to, to Noah, to Shem, Hammer, Japheth, but, but he's connected to us, that he has entered into the nations. He's become one of the nations. He's become our brother, so that no matter who we are, we know that we have one who speaks to the Father on our behalf. And so it's a wonderful way for us to, to, uh, to, to not just think about the table of nations, for us to think about uh, our Savior Christ. Pastor James Price of Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in Wamego, Kansas, giving us God's strong word from Genesis chapter 10. Pastor Price, thank you for bringing us his gifts. You bet. Thanks for letting me be on. I'm your host, Brady Finneran, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of his hand. 